Welcome to Instrumental, a podcast that dives into research about music psychology and gives you takeaways to apply what you learn into your everyday life. Today's topic is all about how music can play a role at the very end of our lives when we're dying. Yep, not the most bubbly, fun topic ever, but music and death I think is really interesting and an important topic. In this episode, we'll cover some research about why music is so powerful in helping us deal with death, and a good chunk of this episode discusses how music is used in death care. I'll tell you about an awesome volunteer choir called Threshold Choir, a profession called music thanatology that provides music vigils for actively dying people, and of course, music therapists when they're working in hospice care. Takeaways include some conversations to have with your loved ones, um, to start talking about how you might want music to play a role at the end of your life. Keep listening to find out more. I'm just going to say this up front. Death is a really big topic. Death can be a really serious topic, but death does not have to be a scary topic, even though it's totally normal to feel uncomfortable or awkward or a little freaked out when talking about it. Talking about death isn't something that our Western culture encourages a lot of, and often even really close families don't have important conversations about what's going to happen to us all someday. It's inevitable that we're going to die. Myself, I've become a tad just a little more comfortable thinking and talking about death after I discovered the Ask a Mortician YouTube channel. I totally highly recommend it. This channel is hosted by mortician and death positivity advocate Caitlin Doty, who brings humor and quirkiness and a little snark into conversations about death. Some of her videos involve answering questions that we would never ask in public or wonder out loud. Stuff like, What happened to all the dead people trapped on the Titanic? Or can I be mummified? Or the classic, what happens to breast implants when a corpse gets cremated? So stuff like that, you get a feel for her channel. But she also starts really, I think, cool videos. She also has really cool videos about starting these conversations with others and how to deal with death while we're still living instead of just pushing it off. Um, A recent Ask a Mortician video that I really appreciated was entitled, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Death-Positive People. And I thought to myself, self, I would like to be more of a death-positive person. So of course I watched the video. One of Caitlin's death-positive habits is to see death everywhere. Not like a sixth sense, I see dead people kind of way, but seeing death everywhere, she explained, means paying attention to how our own behavior and others' behavior is shaped about our expectations for death. So if you get really obsessed about a certain promotion at work, or if you, uh, if you, I don't know, are worried about looking older, or if you're always wondering, why are people so insistent and defensive about their political views? All of these thoughts and behaviors and feelings can be somehow tied to the knowledge that we have that we are going to die someday and how we deal with that fact. As conscious, future-oriented beings, us humans are saddled with knowing that our time will eventually come to an end. 
we will die, and that is terrifying to know that everything will one day just stop. If we thought about this reality for a majority of our waking hours, constantly worried that we're going to die, that death is just around the corner, we'd be too preoccupied, too anxious to get anything else done, and I'd imagine that our mental health would probably deteriorate as well. To deal with all of the unpleasant realities surrounding our impending death, we engage with all sorts of behaviors to try and deny that death will happen to us. Or on the flip side, we also might try to transcend, to go beyond death, to be part of something or to leave a legacy that will allow us in some form to continue on after death. Okay, so humans have a psychological conflict between the reality of death and our own self-preservation instincts, and because death is inevitable and somewhat unpredictable, this conflict produces terror, fear in us. We are existentially freaked out by this fact. Social psychologists call this terror management theory, the idea that the often unconscious fear of our own mortality leads us to form identities and leads us to embrace value systems or cultural traditions that provide us with meaning and value. So to avoid the, so to speak, existential void when we die, we spend time and energy from our lives to invest in our cultural identity so that we become a part of something greater and more meaningful that, again, continues on beyond our own tiny specks of individual lives. I've thrown a lot of social psychology theory at you. How does music factor in, though? Well, music is present in all cultures, which we've just identified as one way that we deal or cope with the fact that we're going to die. How many times can I say this in the podcast? You're going to die someday. So will I. All right, we're not going to dwell on that fact. All right, so question one we're going to dig into into this podcast is how can music help us manage the anxiety that we have around death? Most of the research um, in this part of the episode comes from a lit review written by Audrey Berger Cardini, who did um, this awesome article that analyzed how music relates to terror management theory and how music acts as a cultural tool to help us deal with death. One of the themes she found in the literature suggests that music can be a way for us to deny death or at least exert some more control over the time we have before death comes. Music itself, when we're composing it or performing it, music is one way to control our perception of time. We can make time feel like it's going by more quickly or slowly by changing the tempo, or when you're playing music in a certain meter, um, you're, you're using a pattern that divides time into a certain way. So this is more on the philosophical side than the scientific side, but some scholars argue that by transforming our perception of time through music, it's like we're exerting control over time for almost like momentarily denying death's power to completely catch us off guard because we're shaping time. Another way music can help us defy death is when we're creating music that becomes a legacy project of sorts. We listen to music and songs written all the time by people who have died decades or centuries ago, but their music that they still played and um, composed is preserved when we keep playing that music after their death. So when we write new music or even just make a recording of ourselves making music, that record can be thought of as 
like a form of an immortality project. We're creating something outside of ourselves via music that exists independently of us and hopefully for years after us can continue on. And this is kind of an aside, but I don't know. I guess like with the internet and posting things to the internet, like, I don't know. If I put up a video of myself singing like a bad cover version of like a 90s Backstreet Boys song, is that going to be on YouTube forever? Maybe that's more terrifying than people forgetting who I am. I don't know. I'll let you decide that for yourself. Let's get back to Cardney's lit review about music and terror management. We know, of course, that music functions in communities as a way to teach and bring people into a common culture and build group identity. And part of managing our death anxiety is about shoring up and committing to the culture that we're a part of. So again, it's something we're a part of something bigger than us. Think of holiday songs. Christmas songs that are traditional, they've been sung for generations, Uh, you know them, your parents know them, your grandparents, probably your great-grandparents sang some of the same Christmas songs if you celebrate Christmas in your household. It's the shared cultural musical legacy that reaffirms that you are a part of that community. And I know Christmas music gets overplayed a lot, but doesn't it feel really great to sing those songs every early December, maybe November, before you've heard them ad nauseum by like Christmas time. But when you sing those common songs, you're tapping into that part of your traditions that is bigger than yourself and that if you decide to have kids, you will continue to teach onto them. It's like this common musical thread through time. Another theme in the music and terror management literature suggests that songs can provide people with coping mechanisms they need to deal with death anxiety. A study by Bodner and Gilboa looked at how the thematic content of music might impact how people respond to others. So we didn't talk about this earlier, but a lot of experimental research into terror management theory has found that when you remind people that they're going to die, they often double down on their commitment to their own culture to the point that they start having negative feelings about other cultures that they're not a part of. This Bodner and Gil- Gilboa article wanted to know how people would respond to an outgroup if they listened to music with themes of death. In their experiment, they had Israeli undergrad students listen to either five minutes of love songs, five minutes of silence, or five minutes of crisis songs, which included songs that commemorate fallen soldiers and terrorist victims on Israel's National Memorial Day. And so these crisis songs had a lot of themes of death. Now, participants self-identified as either religiously Jewish or secularly Jewish, and these two groups have a history of conflict in Israel. Results found that listening to these crisis songs actually reduced feelings of prejudice and stereotyping, um, those stereotyping attitudes that maybe the religious Jews had towards the secular Jews or vice versa. But this change in the attitudes towards an outgroup was not observed in the groups who were in the other listening conditions. So it's possible that songs that remind us of death can bring us closer with others that we have some kind of common identity with, even if there are disagreements between subgroups of the same culture. Another study by Nier and Rieger recruited heavy metal music fans and had them all write essays about death, which seems like a very metal thing to do in the first place. 
After writing these essays, participants either listen to heavy metal music, so music of their own musical culture, so to say, or they listen to an audiobook without music. These results found that the metal fans who listened to metal music after writing the death essay had higher self-esteem and were less likely to need to assert their worldviews after listening to the music than the fans who just heard the audiobook. So these results are consistent with the explanation that hearing music that's important to our social identities, this type of music can act as a buffer against our fear of death. Music that we feel is an expression of ourselves boosts our self-esteem and can be a mediator for expressing our worldviews, even if we're reminded that we're going to die. When we encounter music that's an expression of our identity, this type of music may help us with terror management surrounding our deaths, even if the music's lyrical content contains themes of death, like the Israeli crisis songs or heavy metal music. Altogether, music can serve a profound role in how we approach, analyze, and deal with our own deaths. gone over research about how music factors into how we deal with death or avoid dealing with death. The rest of the episode is going to focus on music's role in death care. How can music be utilized to support people who are faced with their own death more immediately, like if you have a terminal illness? First though, I do want to cover some basics and disclaimers. Number one, I live in the United States, and I was raised with and am most familiar with Western practices surrounding death care. In the United States, that often includes a lot of medical interventions um, and keeping death care in nursing homes and hospitals, and people don't often die at home, although many surveys say that people want to die at home in a familiar place. I also want to acknowledge that other cultures have different practices and approaches to death care and using music as a part of the dying process, and this episode is mainly going to focus on what I've encountered as a music therapist within these Western medical traditions and how music is factored into that. I'll also be talking a lot about hospice for the rest of the episode, so I just want to give a quick introduction to that. Hospice is an approach to providing care to people who are terminally ill that focuses on quality of life rather than trying to extend someone's life. People eligible for hospice care usually have a prognosis of living less than six months, but it's not a deathbed service. It's not like you go on hospice and you're expected to immediately die. Hospice is also not necessarily a place to stay like a nursing home or a hospital, even though some facilities may have units that are focused on hospice care. But some hospice patients get home care. They get to stay in their home and team members of the hospice come to them. Essentially, hospice is an approach to care that offers dignity and hope to people with life-limiting illnesses, and many hospice companies provide special services to provide individualized care at the end of people's lives. Which brings us to our second question in this episode, how is music used in death care today? The short answer is it's different for everyone, but healthcare in general seems to be getting more and more holistic, meaning that when caring for somebody's health, 
the whole person is taken to account, not just what's happening in their body, but also trying to understand the person through the lens of their culture, their values, and their identities as individuals, which is totally a great thing. Hospice has always had more of this holistic flavor, and that often involves incorporating music into a patient's care. Music, as we just learned, relates to terror management theory and helps us transcend death, but music can also support other physical and emotional needs that people have at the end of life. Hearing is often the last sense to go, so even if someone isn't able to see or speak, especially if they've declined a lot physically, they can often still hear and respond to music, which makes it such a powerful tool for hospice care at the end of people's lives. Today, I'm really excited to tell you about three music and death care options, music volunteers, music therapists, and music thanatologists. First up are music volunteers, who are basically musicians who volunteer their time to provide music for people in hospice care. One music volunteer organization I want to tell you about is the Threshold Choir, whose mission is to sing for those at the thresholds of life. Today, there are over 150 chapters of the Threshold Choir around the world, and these choirs provide short, usually 20-minute bedside choir performances with two to four singers. The music that these choirs provide are usually spiritual in nature, although not religious, and they're meant to provide a calm, soothing, and reassuring environment for the hospice patient and their family to listen to and enjoy. From the clips I've heard, and there are lots of great clips and interviews on YouTube, so check those out, and I'll link those in the show notes, most of the songs are soft and kind of sound like a lullaby. Just like we sing lullabies at the beginning of life, it makes sense to me that a singing style that's simple, repetitive, and caring would fill it in really well at the end of life. I think it's so cool that the Threshold Choir exists because music is such a connecting force and people in hospice are often isolated, they can't go out into the community for a live performance, so Threshold brings the music to the individual and it's all free of charge. To get a taste of the type of music that a Threshold Choir might provide, here's a recording done by members of the Pittsburgh Threshold Choir singing a song commissioned from composer Alice Parker. hospice care, but it's often not the only music service offered by hospice companies. There might also be a music therapist on staff. 
And even though I'm a music therapist, hospice music therapy is not my specialty, although I have provided music therapy in hospice settings during my career, if that makes sense. Um, But there are music therapists who absolutely love working in hospice, and that's all they do, including one of my undergrad professors. So, hey, Professor O'Neill, if you're listening, my professor said she'd always get the question, how can you work with dying people all day? It seems like a huge downer, right, to always be working with people who are going to pass away eventually. My professor said that she always felt really honored to work with people at the end of their lives and that self-care, taking care of herself as an individual, was a big part of her practice so that she didn't get burnt out. Now, music therapists are different from music volunteers for several reasons, but the most important difference is that a music therapist is going to do a clinical assessment of a patient, set treatment goals and objectives that are worked on during a music therapy session, and these often are focused, again, on quality of life. It's not about getting a hospice patient to do a specific set of behaviors, but rather trying to meet their needs in the moment. And while music volunteers are probably going to stick to performing music for patients, music therapists have a whole toolbox of music interventions. Music therapists are aware of all the ways that music can function as an expression of someone's cultural identity, how songs can hold specific autobiographical memories that are meaningful to a person's life when they're reminiscing and reviewing their life and building meaning, and how music can reinforce a patient's worldviews. It's... It's really hard to describe exactly what a hospice music therapy session might entail. Sometimes it just involves the patient listening to music. A music therapist might also help a patient write a song about their life or about the stage of their life for self-expression. Maybe the music therapist leads a music and imagery relaxation experience to help the patient with pain management Or the music therapist might facilitate singing and playing preferred music with the client to increase reminiscence and decrease the patient's social isolation. Research by Robert E. Kraut has shown that even a single music therapy session can improve a hospice client's pain control, relaxation, and ratings of physical comfort. So music therapy's benefits go beyond dealing with clients on that transcendent terror management existential level, but can also help physically and emotionally as well. One super, super, super cool project I need to tell you about really quickly is being done by music therapist Brian Shrek. His Sounds of Life project involves creating musical legacy recordings using the hospice patient's own heartbeat. Isn't that awesome? He had the idea or he... He has rigged up putting a really small microphone into a stethoscope, which when you put it on a person's heart, can record their heartbeat. Then together with the hospice patient, Brian will write and record an original song so that after the patient passes, their family has a piece of music written, maybe performed by the individual and set to the rhythm of their own heart. That is so cool maybe even tear-jerking. If you want to find out more, again, go to our show notes, which are at our website, instrumentalpodcast.com. There's lots of articles and videos showing you Brian's process with his heartbeat recordings. Um, And yeah, you can actually see it in action. 
The last music and death care option I'm going to tell you about today is music thanatology. It's a field that's relatively smaller and younger than music therapy, but it definitely has its own role in death care. I'm friends with a woman who's probably one of the only people who has dual certifications. She's both a board-certified music therapist, and she's also a certified music thanatologist. Before meeting and talking with her, I had heard of music thanatology, but I didn't really know what music thanatologists did or how their approach to music and death care was all different from a music therapist's approach, but I totally gained this new appreciation and deep respect for music thanatology after hearing about it from my friend. So let's define music thanatology. It is a musical and clinical modality that uses live prescriptive heart music to assist hospice patients in the dying process. So in contrast to music therapists who might meet their patients at any time during the hospice process, music thanatologists provide music vigils when someone is in the last stages of life. Music thanatologists almost exclusively use live harp and live vocal music, which is often improvised and is very responsive to the patient's moment-by-moment physical and emotional needs. Honestly, this is a huge part of why I have so much respect and I am in awe of music thanatologists. They're often providing live music at the bedside of someone who may be actively dying and playing music that is someone's transition from life into death. And that honestly, that sounds really intense to me. I don't know if I could do it on a regular basis for work myself, but from my understanding of music thanatology training, there is a lot of self-reflection so that the music thanatologist is Um, has processed their views on death and has kind of negotiated how they relate to death themselves. When I was talking with my friend about how she approaches her role as a music thanatologist differently than when she's in the music therapy role, I was really interested to hear in the differences of the musical repertoire she provides. As a music therapist myself, my instinct is often to play familiar music for my clients or music that I think my client will prefer so that I can draw on those memories or connections that someone has with music. On the flip side, though, music thanatologists try to avoid these extra musical associations so that their repertoire often includes unfamiliar music, um, maybe from the Renaissance or medieval period, or often the harp music is improvised. By playing music that's unfamiliar, the music thanatologist patient doesn't associate any particular memories or thoughts with the music, but instead the present moment is emphasized. Um, Music will be improvised based on the patient's breathing, maybe their heart rate if there's a heart monitor. The music thanatologist is always keeping a really close observation on the patient's body language and facial expressions as the music is happening. The point of the music in music thanatology is not to entertain or distract the patient, but to provide an environment that helps the person let go in their own personal way. Of course, I've got to throw some research at you. So there's research from a study by Freeman et al. that found that patients um, who 
had who were provided with music thanatology were less agitated, more wakeful, and demonstrated slower, deeper, and easier breathing patterns. Music and death care can take so many forms. At the end of the day, death is one of the most vulnerable times in our lives. And music can be one of the most personal, intimate parts of our lives. And when they come together, there is the potential for these really beautiful, profound moments to happen, even if death is one of the most challenging parts of life. I hope one thing you take away apart from all the music and the research is to start thinking and having these conversations about death now. Death is hard. Even when a loved one who's dying is clear about their wishes and they're organized, death is still super hard. And it only goes downhill if there's ambiguity about someone's final wishes. So start these discussions now. Maybe one of the more approachable topics of discussion might include how you or a loved one would like music to be incorporated into their death care or a memorial service. My mom and I have had this conversation a few times. Not that my mom's in, like, poor health or anything, thank goodness. But, like, if we're in the car and one of her very favorite songs comes on, she'll turn to me and be like, Bria, I want this song played at my funeral. And I realize that I've never written any of these songs down. I'm usually just like, okay, mom. Um, so I, I gotta go back and ask her again. All right, gonna do that. My mom mentioning her favorite songs doesn't happen all the time, but it doesn't also feel out of place either. So these conversations about death shouldn't be one and done kinds of things, but it should be ongoing and updated um, as someone's preferences or wishes changed. One document you may want to use to organize your death choices or preferences is a document called Five Wishes, which is an advanced care planning resource. It's different from an advanced directive or a living will, but I think, don't quote me on this, but I think that in some states the five wishes document can be legally binding, like if there's a witness that signs it or something. Again, though, I am not a legal expert. It, I think it is a good starting resource at the very least. Um, so you can check out more information and get a copy at fivewishes.org. This document provides space for you to outline what kind of medical treatment you want, how you want others to treat you during your death care or at the end of life, and gives you space to outline what you want prioritized at the end of life. Another one of my friends who's a music therapist, actually most of my friends are music therapists, but I found out about this five wishes document from her, and in her version of the document, she said that she wants to receive music therapy as part of her death care process. She's been a musician her whole life, she works as a music therapist, and she wants a music therapist to someday be involved at the end of her life if possible. And if you are a caregiver or a decision maker for someone who is in hospice, or maybe you're in hospice yourself, and you think that music would be beneficial, talk to your hospice company and see if music in any form is provided. I know for sure that all hospices have volunteer services, which often can include volunteer musicians. A lot of hospices employ music therapists, and you can see if a music thanatologist lives in your area by visiting the Music Thanatology Association's international website. Um, all of that is going to be linked in our show notes. And finally, I hope that when you have these maybe tough but important conversations, 
You also take the time to connect with whomever you're having these conversations with. Um, I don't know, it just, it's such a different way to get to know somebody and they can be really intimate and vulnerable times. So make the most of it. I also want to throw out the idea that if you're a musician and feel called to donate your time and talents, you may want to reach out to a local hospice company's volunteer services or maybe join the local Threshold Choir chapter if you'd like to get involved with similar work yourself. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, death is a big topic, but as we've learned in this episode, music has an important role in how we negotiate death while we're living. Especially for this episode, there were so many resources and cool groups that I got to talk about and tell you about. Um, For more information on all of that, like uh, the Five Wishes document, the Ask a Mortician YouTube channel, check out our website, instrumentalpodcast.com. There's going to be links to all of that, as well as the research references and music that you heard in this episode. Thanks again for listening to Instrumental, and I'll see you again next week.